This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to John Charles Bielek, a teacher, a designer, an historian, and a preservationist. He makes marbled paper, the sort of colorful pattern paper that you see in centuries-old books. It is a profession, he says, and I am a professional. He is also a performer, an entertainer. He will be at the Altamont Fair this year making marbled paper as fairgoers watch. He feels he has something in common with the jugglers and the stilt walkers that he's hung around with at these fairs for years. We're in a circus, he says, and I've got my own little tent, and that's my circus, and I'm the ringmaster. He's in Missouri, but he's going to be at the Altamont Fair to teach how to make and demonstrate marbled paper. So welcome, John. Thank you. Good to be here. I'd just like to start by hearing a little about how you got into this amazing craft, do you call it, um, art? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of things. Um, in my mind, it's, it's history and it's preservation of a historic trade. So I consider it a trade. Um, and it's, it's a way I make a living. But um, I started marbling back in 94, and I wasn't real serious about it. It was a way to teach children in a literacy program that I was part of in St. Louis. And there was a not-for-profit art school named Taproots School of the Arts. Melanie Daniels was head of it, and she worked out a deal where she would go to the public schools in the city and get children together. And so she really specialized in um, book arts, like printing, paper making, and um, well, then paper marbling came in, and that was my job. So I didn't know how to marble, but I had seen it as a very young child. Um, in the, the big public library downtown St. Louis in the books. So it was part of books. And and I always was amazed by it and never really thought about it until I was in college and I needed some of it. So I bought some. And when I started binding books later on, years later, I couldn't find the appropriate paper. So I um, just luckily met Curtis Findlay. Curtis was a printer in a the Mercantile Library downtown St. Louis, and he was marbling paper. And so they introduced me to Curtis, uh, Melanie Daniels did, and Curtis showed me how to marble paper. Now, the reason they showed me was order, order to teach children how to marble paper, not for my own benefit, but it became important to me. Um, and I continue it you know, 20 something years later. So it was all about teaching children that uh, I got into this. That's a great story. And before we go forward and hear more about what you're doing now, I just like to keep in in the backstory because it's so fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, These were children in a literacy program. So my sense is, were they underprivileged children? Were they, who, who were these kids? And how did they respond to this 
beautiful trade, I guess is the right word I know now, of marbled paper. How, how, what was the reaction when you showed it to them? Well, um, they, they are uh, inner city kids, not quite inner city, right on the outside of the city. And um, they had it pretty good. You know, as far as the school, they had good teachers, they had good, good principal. So he made sure that they had good opportunities. But some of them came from some pretty rough backgrounds. And um, we bonded with them quite well. Um, so and, and, and they they enjoyed our company and we we enjoyed theirs and and they loved the marbling, of course, but they also loved doing other things like putting on plays and and doing all sorts of different things related to writing stories. OK, we, a lot of it was about writing, but um, they they liked the fact that they could throw paint and it would look good every time. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, yeah, you know, they they loved it. But, you know, who really loved it was I went into the real deep city of Charleston, South Carolina, and it was definitely a, a different situation there. And those kids had never seen anything like this at all. And they were just blown away. And um, so I kept seeing that reaction wherever I'd go. And it was no different from the adults. They would get all excited and jump up and down and, and just I couldn't stop them. They just kept going. Um, we would wouldn't stop for lunch and during classes because they would just they couldn't stop marbling. And that's how it is, because it's so easy to do. You just throw paint. And um, of course, there's more to it than that eventually. But uh, the response of people was um, usually it was, wow, it's so immediate. I can do something and there it is. It's done. Um, it's not like an oil painting where you might paint on it for three years. You know, you know, or do a video where it might take 15 hours of editing with marbling. It's done within a minute and or three or 10, whatever, depending on what you do. Well, so it was it's. Yeah, you have on your website a videos that show it. And it is just almost miraculous watching these blobs turn into beauty before your eyes. But I'm still going backstory because you just sound mm -hmm. like such a fascinating person. Um, you mentioned that you were in college. You needed some of it. What were you doing in college? Because most of us don't have this need for marble paper. What was it then? Yeah. What were you studying? Where were you in college? Yeah, I was at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, and under um, the instruction of some incredible instructors. And they, I was going through a graduate program, and uh, we were uh, graphic designers. Uh, you know, media, as in video and all that, as well as print media. But I was a print media major, so um, I had to come up with a thesis that was part of the program. And a thesis has developed into a um, linear and nonlinear thinking um, as far as how how the eye and the mind work together to get information and make get information and make uh, communication out of it. So, of course, I love books and I was kind of playing around with books back way back then also. So I started designing books with, you know, books or print media. Film is a linear uh, media in a way because you start and then you stop at the end right well books are kind of that way too there's a first page and then you read there's an image then there's reading then there's an image sometimes no images and and i was studying that image uh, word and image pairing together to get information across it sounds complicated but it's really not um so i started writing a thesis and in, in binding books 
um, and designing books with my thesis to show what the thesis was all about, proving that what I was talking about and researching was there. It was in books. It was in posters. So I was binding books and I, and I said, heck, I've got to get some marbled paper in these books. And well, marbled paper is an abstract thing and it's sort of um, not necessarily information. It's just like wallpaper. Just look at it, right? Well, I was incorporating information in everything I could visually in order to come across with a a message, a specific message. So my marbling became part of the book. And I'm, I designed a book on a um, weather situation and it involved a tornado. And um, it's just a simple, you know, platform to, to show communication through word and image. And I used marbled paper that had a lot of swirls in it. And it was kind of dark. And that was uh, just a, a tiny bit of the information that might help somebody understand the feeling or the message of the book. And there were no words in the book, by the way, but through image only, um, abstract and, you know, you know, uh, images of laundry hanging on lines, uh, trees, everything like that, the, the landscape, clouds, it all communicated the feeling of a storm. So that's how I started marbling, um, looking for marble paper. But when I, when I started to really need it was years later, I needed paper that was 18th century in design. Um, I know I couldn't go to a museum or carry out of a book, to, you know, and I, I wanted the real thing. So that's why I started really seriously marbling was for the book binding I was doing. And this is just later on. So I really got into, into the old books, leather bindings for, you know, four or five cord bindings with hemp and leather and all that wonderful old style stuff. <clears throat> and, um, of course, I had had the proper marble paper, and I had to make it myself. So, wow, I'm just in awe. So many <laughs> ideas are shooting off in my head like fireworks. So um, just to go back to this thesis, you <laughs> said the nonlinear, the linear thinking we can all understand. It's like a movie begins at one place, ends at another, a book. But what is the nonlinear thinking? Is that like the book that you made on storms where you had just different images of things like the laundry on the line or the tornado? What, what is nonlinear thinking? Well, I don't know about exactly what the definition of nonlinear thinking, but when it comes to graphic design and communication, it would be more or less like, let's say, a poster um, on a wall or, or whatever. Um, a billboard uh, along the highway. There's certain ways of guiding the eye to get that information in, in an appropriate way and as quickly as possible and as effectively as possible. So design graphically through type and image, uh, just type alone, the way it's laid out on that surface can help you get that information. But there's no start and stop on a poster. It's just all at once, right? Mm -hmm. So you might have a focus point on it that bring you to like, the picture of a face you go to the eyes you look at the face and then all of a sudden you notice that there's bold type to one side so you go to the bold type and eventually you'll, you'll just take it in and it'll make it in your mind connects these things it's designed to do that it's designed to take information and make a a structure or linear bit of information that's how we talk it's all in line so you can you can take words out of context and they mean something completely different than if they are in the context of a certain amount of words. So that's what I was kind of going on. 
Like, how can I put images in context of each other in a certain order to get certain information across? So it's kind of like hieroglyphs. You know, they all have meaning, uh, like the ancient um, Egyptian hieroglyphs. They all have meaning. They don't mean anything to us unless we really studied them. But images can become uh, very accurate modes of communication, even though they're not verbal. Anybody, no matter what language you you have, you have the potential to speak to somebody, more like music. Music's sort of linear, too, if you think about it. But um, so so that's that's what it was. You know, that's linear thinking was more or less. How do you get the mind to track in a certain way to get information in a certain order? OK, a certain order of information gets meaning. And if there's no meaning, then there's no communication. You know, if it just looks nice, well, that's good. It's nice that it looks good. But does it say something? So. So what I was doing in these books and what I what all graphic designers do is they try to get information across, but make it a pleasant, sometimes not so pleasant, but try to emote um, you know, get a response out of somebody, whether it is meaning through communication or just purely enjoyment, whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's I guess that answers your question. Yeah, that's just fascinating. And then you said years later. You needed this paper for an 18th century project. And what was that? What were you doing with the 1700s? What was, what was happening there? Well, um, there's something about my personality that I'm, I'm drawn to old things. Um, I'm not sure exactly where that started. Maybe it was because of my parents. My mom was a, was a genealogist. And um, history was always kind of floating around in our, our house. Uh, we had antiques, and, I, and we always went to look at the old books. So um, when I met Curtis Finley and he taught me how to marble paper, he stressed that the type of marbling we were doing was not like most marbling done in the world anymore. And I said, well, how far does it go back? He goes, well, he was doing pre-1840 marbling. So there was a definite divisions um, that you can trace with marbling. Um, His marbling was pre-alum, which means it was before modern coal tar produced pigments that required a change in the chemistry of the old style of marbling. So alum, um, which is a mordant in uh, a lot of things done today, like for dyeing fabric, you need a way to get the dye and certain pigments to stick to fabrics or whatever. And in marbling, it was sticking the pigments to the paper. So when these new coal tar produced pigments came along to synthetics, um, the organic based pigments, they wouldn't work anymore. So marbling stopped um, until they could figure out um, how to get it to stick again. And they were using alum, which is aluminum, potassium sulfate. And it was sticking the um, pigment to the paper. So Curtis said that, believed, and he's correct, that alum eats up paper. And that's the main reason why a lot of our papers on our old books are just deteriorating. Okay, so alum's not, so he says, well, I'm not going to use alum. I'm going to go back and look at the older marbling. And he did, and he figured it out. Um, So what did they use? What did he figure out? Well, he, he used specific pigments that are organics, not organics, excuse me, inorganics, like ochre, the clay-type pigments 
the earth pigments, and in other things like um, oh, there's oh, what's the other one? Well, there's alum too. You can use alum to uh, get pigments to stick to the alum itself, and that cancels out the problem of alum eating up paper. So the pigments were um, common, common age-old things like the ochres. So, so Curtis used used those pigments, and he didn't tell me which ones they were. He just told me um, that this is how you make them. So you, you can go in nature and get a plant and turn that organic pigment into like like a inorganic and it will work and that's what they were using as well as the inorganics so um so you could still use alum to make pigments to stick to paper but it was it was a little it was a couple stages different but these pigments that i use were solely inorganics from the ground the ochres french yellows you know the uh, reds so they had like a tan color. There's a few others out there. So I found about six or seven pigments that actually worked. And I figured it out. I, I don't know how it happened, but I just worked at it long enough. It took about six to eight months of grinding pigments and looking all over the world, literally, for pigments that might work. So I went to the Washington University Library in St. Louis and went to their art library, which is pretty extensive. And, and found all the pigments that were being used in the 16, 1700s. And um, you know what? They worked, to my amazement. Wow. So, I saw in one of the videos you had like these glass beakers full of these, pow they look like powders, do they, in the different colors? And so these are things that you've ground out of what? I mean, what, well, what are the yeah. things you use to grind up? Well, here's the thing. Today, we're pretty lucky because the pigments are ground pretty finely already. Mm -hmm. So when you you could buy them almost ready. So I, I didn't have to do a whole lot of work. I thought I did. And I used to grind them by hand, but I stopped because I found that a blender worked fine. Um, so I would buy yellow ochre, French yellow ochre of a certain type. And I would buy it and I would put it on a, uh, a granite slab with some distilled water and I I know a, a glass blower in um, uh, at Dollywood, Pigeon Forge, and he was a glass blower. And he made a mall for me, which is like a big teardrop thing with a flat surface. So I would grind the pigments in water and break them apart and get them as fine as possible. Then I would scrape that into a, uh, by the way, this is all done with water. Okay, you have to grind them in water. And then I would put that sludge in a container and add the appropriate amount of a distilled water to that to come up with the, just the right amount of pigment to water ratio. And that was all I had to do. And so it's just a literally grinding and you'll see this on some of the old artists uh, images in the chemistry guys are grinding and they're just going in figure eight and circular motions. Um, there was a movie made um, the girl with a pearl earring um, that movie I watched recently because everybody says you got to watch that movie and I did and there she was she was grinding pigments and um, the same way that I do but I wasn't putting oil in it I was putting distilled water because we don't water we don't this is water marbling it's gouache we don't use oils that was until later that people started doing that so 
I don't know if I'm running on too much about this. No, this is absolutely fascinating. And like everybody else, I saw that movie, but I can't remember the scene where she was grinding. That's interesting. But um, so I want to take a leap now to the fact that you're coming to the Altamont Fair. Mm -hmm. And how did it come to you to travel about the country, I assume, to educate people on this lost trade what what is that lifestyle like and why do you do and how does it sustain you well it 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 sort of sustains me financially but it definitely sustains me emotionally and spiritually if that's the right word um it i i thoroughly enjoy sharing what i do uh, and it, it just all kind of came together being a teacher uh, i like to teach and i like to preserve things i like the preservation of this trade um which is why I do the historic type. Um, so that teaching, the preservation, education, all that, and I like sharing. So uh, there were, uh, I don't know, there are public events called rendezvous, and they're really big in uh, Missouri and Illinois and Indiana. Of course, they're all over the country and world where people, as a hobby, uh, live a period in time, and they do, some of them take up a trade like blacksmithing or chair making, weaving, spinning, and I was the paper marbler. So I wanted to share this with people because how else could I do it? You know, how else could I make a living? How could, how could I make money doing this? So I started getting paid to go to events. And of course, eventually I started selling things and selling product made from the paper. And of course that took more research. Like what, what was it for? Why did people use it? You know, and um, it, what I think what, the main benefit of me going to these rendezvous for me personally was it taught me how to marble paper. Um, it taught me by doing, and if you, if you marble paper, it's, it's a, it's not an outdoor sport. I mean, you don't do it outside. Normally you do it in a very controlled environment, no sun, dust, wind. Uh, it's very fragile. It's very delicate. Uh, it fails on you all the time. And, so me going out on, on into these rendezvous situations was kind of risky. It was like it was like doing an operation on somebody in a tent, which which is kind of what I was doing outside. And there was a lot of problems, a lot of problems. And I overcame those and became a very strong paper marbler because I had to deal with all these extraneous influences that you normally don't put yourself in because it's hard enough to get a thin film of pigment to float on water and to be able to control it. So these rendezvous I started doing and eventually I started being asked to do classes and um, again to public and not children, you know, just out, not at the school that I was at, but it, it, you know, like institutions. And and I started to really want to travel. Excuse me wanted to travel because I like to travel. So I started to go to West Virginia quite often because there was a school there and they would have me twice a year. And um, I would go to different historic venues like museums and um, events like at the Lincoln Library in Illinois, down in Springfield, Illinois, they would have me to do events there because of the Lincoln Library because books and marbling went together. And so before I knew it, I was making a, a little bit of a living uh, selling 
and teaching. And um, teaching in the form of demonstration as well as in classroom situations. And that's what I do too today. Yeah, and you also on your website just have a marvelous selection of things people can buy that are marbled, everything from bookmarks to sets of stationery. So what what is it like? It's also must be kind of like a performance because when you're at a fair, Altamont's is a tri-county fair, Albany, Schenectady, Green. And you know, there are a lot of people that are there for the midway. <laughs> there are people mm-hmm. that are used to be a place where the latest in technology would be shared for the farmers who came, you know, from the rural areas. And now here you are in the middle of this, although I must say the uh, historic roots of our newspaper, um, the man that ran the print shop that printed the paper for years has a display with his son where they actually print on the old printing press. But most people are not there for history. So how is it that you... um, um, capture these passerbys. I mean, it must be kind of a performance almost that you're doing in the midst of all of, you know, cotton candy and, and kids trying to get on the Ferris wheel. What What is that like? Well, there is my niche, and that's how I fit in. Um, I don't treat this as a craft or a um, craft as in a hobby craft. I, um, I promote it as that, though. But I, I, it is a profession and I, I am a professional marbler. And again, the, the history comes in where I'm preserving it. So uh, the rendezvous history of me, you know, when I used to do those, we would be required to dress 18th century and almost go into first person acting. And, you know, everything we had uh, should be able to fit into a, a movie, actually, a real Hollywood movie. In fact, Hollywood producers would get us and use us for actors sometimes in the background because we're so accurate with our presentations. And I've been in a couple movies, um, not big ones, but little ones. And it's because we, we really attend to detail. So when, when these fairs started seeing us, Um, seeing me at a fair, they would say they would send out people to other fairs to look around to get us. And I was found and I just go to a lot of fairs now by word of mouth. And that's how I'm going. Well, that's why I'm going to be at Altamont, because somebody saw me at the Washington County Fair um, there in Greenwich. So and and so my niche is I've got a tent that is very period I dress turn of the century. Actually, I'm not 18th century there, though I'm doing 18th century marbling and later. Um, so I have a lot of wood. I don't have any plastic. Um, you walk in there and it's a time capsule. And, and that's, that's entertainment. And it, because it's interesting, it's educational. And um, I think I do put on an act. I am a little different in public uh, than I am. Uh, like most of us, you know, when we're in public, we're a little different. And I, I don't do first person. I'm always me. And um, I talk frankly. And I, I, you know, though though I do act, you know, anybody that works in the public has to act a little bit um, to get attention and to, to be communicative and uh, to teach. And um, it's surprising how a lot of the people that do fairs 
like the stilt walker and the jugglers and the people that are on these, these fairs, they hang around me because they think I'm one of them. And um, I guess I am, you know, I'm, I'm an act. Uh, and um, I, I've gotten to know many of these people through, through the years. And um, it's because we're, we're kind of, we're not carnies, but we're in a circus <laughs> and I've got my own little tent and that's my circus. And um, I'm the ringmaster and I communicate marbling and that's, and people love it. Children just go crazy about it. They really like it. And, um, and that's wonderful. You know, it's, it's great that I can make, give them a little joy during the day. It's, and yet still uh, insert some history and learning there, you know, uh, they're going to go home and they're going to see books now that they've seen me actually produce the paper for. And they're going to go, okay, now I know what that is. And hopefully they'll appreciate it more. And um, who knows, maybe somebody will start marbling on their own and preserve a little piece of history too. Oh, I so. think that's just wonderful. I mean, especially these days, uh, I feel like, you grew up in a family, you said, with antiques and historic books, and you remember this childhood experience in the public library, seeing the marbled paper. But so much of what kids do today is through the screen and is the, the tactile experience of a book or mm -hmm. the marbled paper is almost like a foreign experience. So how wonderful that you're um, making that vivid and real and helping people understand it. Could you just talk a little about your clothes? Because you sent me some pictures and it's mm -hmm. just marvelous. Like you couldn't go buy those. <laughs> what what do you wear? Where does that come from? Well, um, if if I'm lucky enough, I can find a pair of leather shoes that that can can pass as 19th century, early 19th century. Um, I've had people make my own shoe, you know, make shoes for me. Uh, leather shoes that are fairly period and, and functional. Um, I spent a lot of money on shirts. Um, there's a group of ladies in Ohio at Sycamore uh, Clothiers, I think they're called. They made a couple shirts for me. They are really beautiful. And they're about middle 1800s, uh, Civil War and a little later, a little earlier. Um, and they were $150 a piece. And here I am throwing paint. You know, and I'm thinking, gosh, I'm, I'm throwing paint with a $150 shirt on. And, and I've had other people, you know, uh, give me pointers on, well, what to wear, what not to wear. And, you know, a lot of fairs don't care. They just want you to look like, you know, you're, you're before 1900, you know. So I've been lucky enough to find there's a place, another place in Ohio um, that sells Amish clothing. And... Their pants are, are just as period as can be, and you don't have to sew them, make them yourself from original patterns. Because these ladies will make you a pair of pants to fit you for about $35, which is about a third of what it would cost, you know, a period clothier. And they, they work great. You know, they work just fine. Don't tell anybody I said that. But, but um, Amish clothing, you know, it, it's a lot of it's very period. And... Um, so I can get away with that and I can make my own shirts and things like that and aprons and um, fingerless gloves, uh, hats and things, you know, all this stuff. You look at the uh, images, the prints of old 
uh, artisans and you just copy them and you go, well, I like that apron. I'm going to copy that. And that's the way you portray the period at the time. Um, there's a lot of famous paintings out there that show people in domestic scenes. Um, Vermeer, for example, um, shows a lot of domestic scenes of ladies with their aprons and in kitchens and common people. Well, that's how we get our ideas for proper clothing. And uh, Diderot's encyclopedia is how I get my idea for tools and tables, uh, fixtures and things for my tent. And of course, the clothing in there is just phenomenal um, and very accurately portrayed. And we just do, we copy those things, do the best we can. Well, I don't want to take away from your performance by having you reveal too much, but could you just kind of briefly describe what the process is, what people are going to witness when they come by your tent to, to see you doing this? It seems like almost magic. Okay, well, there'll be a box that's center stage, and it is the stage where it all happens. And the box has about an inch and a half to two and a half inches of water. And that water has a little bit of carrageenan in it. And carrageen is, um, it's actually a plant. That it's a cold water kelp that we get out of the ocean. And um, I buy it from a gentleman in Oklahoma. <laughs> and he gets it from no telling where. Um, Galen Berry in Oklahoma, he sells marbling supplies and um, he's he's an interesting fellow. He's been marveling for years, but he doesn't do it with modern. He does the modern way. So I go through him to get this old style gelatin type material, gel, gelatinous material. That's where that's what people will see. And it's important to talk about that because that is the, that's everything to marbling is that carrageenan. And then I will throw paint onto that carrageenan. And the paint is water as well. So you've got a water base that is thickened with carrageenan, and then I'm throwing water on top, and the two waters don't mix because of the secret sauce. Now, what the secret sauce is, is a uh, little bit of a solution we get from animals. And I use the original material, and I have a buddy in um, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, that slaughters cows, and um, he gives me the bile. So it's liver bile that is the secret sauce that we put in the paint. And because the bile is a, um, it's a, it's a fatty, salty material, and it bonds with the pigment. Okay, um, it also bonds with the paper at the same time that we lay on top the paint. So I'll be throwing a little bit of bile and paint solution under the carrageenan and it'll float. And then I can take a rake through it or a comb, which is nothing more than like a, um, looks like a dog comb that you might comb your dog's fur with or a cat, um, kind of like a fork. And I bring those through the surface of the water and it pulls the paint in certain ways. That's the patterns that we produce. So I'll throw paint onto that gelatinous material I'll comb it, and then I'll lay paper on top of that very gently. I'll pull it up, and it's done. It's finished. And then I hang that or support it on a wet board and shoot it with some clean water to get that 
thick gelatinous material off and some of the paint will fall off unfortunately but we do the best we can and then we just uh after that we let it drip a bit we hang it up to dry above above me out of the way and then we clear the water on in the box again we throw some more paint and the process starts over again so people don't have to show up at a certain time like they would for, say, a circus performance. It's just a, like a continuing, ongoing process. And they can walk to your tent and watch whatever part of the process you're in and then see see it through the cycle. And if they came in the middle, they can just stay through and see the beginning again. Is that how it works? Yeah, that's the beauty of marbling is it goes on all day over and over again. And... Um, you can come at any time of the day and you're going to see a different pattern. Um, maybe you'll see the, see the same pattern, but it'll be a slightly different version. So I could, I could just continuously marble and not stop and you won't miss anything. You know, you can mm -hmm. come at, and in the morning or at, you know, at seven in the evening and I'm still doing it. And I, the, the thing you'll see that's different is my tent's going to fill up with marble paper. It'll be hanging up and above me and behind me. And you'll get to see a history of the day's work. Uh, I always call it like the today's catch because it is kind of a catch. Like, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do that day. Um, sometimes I plan it out. Sometimes because of the entertainment value that marbling has. And my job is an entertainer at the fair. Um, I will try to get as many patterns produced as possible and um, as many variations as possible. And that's variety. Now, there are times that if I'm having an excellent day, just right, and the weather's rarely just right, I'll produce a certain pattern that's working well, and I'll do it 12, 15 times in a row without stopping. Sometimes I don't even talk. I just work. And so people get the opportunity to peek inside the marbling shop and see history as, as it would have been done on the marble would have been marbling all day, producing most likely a very limited number of patterns, but in great number of, you know, number of papers. Mm -hmm. So, so that's, that's where industry comes in. This wasn't a hobby. This was to make money. And so when I'm there marbling at a fair, a lot of times I'm there to entertain and teach. But then there's times when I really focus on product. And I'm really, really concentrating, trying to defy the environment around me, which is not good for marbling outside in a fair. And I'm, I'm really struggling and I'm concentrating and working and um i don't always talk that much when i'm doing that so um you'll see a couple different sides of the marble are there to, if if they uh if anybody wants to come by and visit oh that's great well do you have any closing thoughts for us anything you'd like to leave our listeners with well um i just want everybody to know that there are a few of us out there that are preserving history um, whether it be restoring automobiles, printing presses, old houses, or a trade like marble paper. And it's not necessarily the paper, but it's the process, tools, and material. I'm going to do it. That's what I'm preserving.
you know, it's the act of marbling as it was done, because rarely do I see anybody doing it this way anymore. So I'm a preservationist. That's what I want everybody to see when they come there. It's just like a little history happening. Oh, that's just marvelous. Well, thank you so much. You're very welcome. 